Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to frito to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Three mistakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. This is the Falcoholic Podcast, the official podcast of the Atlanta Falcons on the SB Nation Podcast Network. I am David Walker, and today we have a different podcast for you, but it's an important one. With the current state of the world during this pandemic, we thought it would be good to discuss what we do and do not know about the coronavirus and how that could directly impact the 2020 NFL season. Normally on this podcast, we talk about the Falcons, we talk about the offseason, we talk about the draft, but there's a real concern uh, from many of you, from many of you who listen to this podcast or read the site about whether or not this season is even going to happen. Uh, and thankfully, we have two very special guests who are joining us on this podcast, uh, joining Matt Chambers and I uh, to talk about this very topic. Uh, first uh, is Dr. Saad Omer. He is the director of the Yale Institute for Global Health. Uh, thank you for being here today. Uh, My pleasure. And, and uh, Dr. Zach Binney, uh, epidemiologist out of Emory University. He's got a, uh, a background as well in sports medicine, or sorry, sorry, uh, Sports injury medicine, is that right? Yes, I study sports injuries and athlete health and the epidemiology surrounding that. Thank you, David and Matt, for having us. Yes, no, thank you. Uh, truly appreciate this. So, uh, and Matt, thank you for uh, helping to organize this and joining me on this podcast today. I uh, really appreciate you being here with me. Yeah, no worries. I figured I'd tag along for this one. <laughs> All right, so. Let's just start at the very top and the, the big picture, because I think people who are reading about it, watching the news, this story is changing. I, I feel like it changes on a day-to-day basis, uh, what we see happening in New York, uh, what we see happening around the country. Uh, so uh, Dr. Zach Binney, uh, hopefully you're the right guy to answer this. What does the big picture look like right now as far as the coronavirus the, in, in the U.S.? Are we flattening the curve? Uh, is New York beginning to get this under control? What, what does the big picture look like right now? Sure, I can start and then uh, Dr. Omer can jump in with anything that I, I miss. Um, so I would say that the first thing to understand is that there's not a single epidemic in the United States. There are epidemics at different stages in different areas of the country. So New York, Washington, California, they're at kind of one stage, and then other areas of the country, uh, either upcoming uh, hotspots that we hear talked about, like uh, Philadelphia and a few other cities, um, they're kind of more on the upswing, and other areas maybe still to, uh, to even really begin their upswing in earnest. <clears throat> and it's a little hard to even know necessarily what parts of the country are at which stage because we're still not at the point where we're doing all the testing uh, that we would like to be to figure that out. But basically, uh, I think you're hearing a lot in the media now about New York reaching its peak 
and starting to level off, uh, particularly in terms of hospitalizations. Deaths are still going up because they're kind of what we would call a lagging indicator. So if you think about the process of getting and dying from coronavirus, uh, from COVID-19, first you would get it, then you would develop symptoms, then you would go into the hospital, and then you would either recover or die. So first, uh, we would expect to see a leveling off of cases, then of hospitalizations, then of deaths. And we're starting to see uh, decreases and plateauing of hospitalizations and ICU admissions. So that's really, really good. But that's one area of the country. That's New York. Um, Other areas, uh, Washington and California come to mind, uh, acted very early and aggressively, uh, even compared to New York. And so their epidemics did not get as out of control or as high uh, as New York's did. Um, Other areas may be still to crest. So I don't want people to get the misunderstanding from all the focus on New York that, hey, everything's peaked and we're going to be coming down soon. That's that's not necessarily the case. Dr. Omer. Yeah, no, I very nicely described. The only thing I would add at this point is that this is not the natural dynamics of the outbreak or outbreaks. Um, as uh, Dr. Benny said, that these are multiple, uh, you know, these are heterogeneous outbreaks. There's variability by region. This is not the natural course of the outbreak. It's unnatural because we as individuals, as groups of people, as regions, as a society, have made it possible for the outbreak to level off in certain regions. And, and so... so the, the solution uh, of, to this problem it has been in the short run uh, to impose drastic social distancing measures. And I'm sure we'll come to the medium-term and long-term solutions. But at this point, what we are seeing, the signs of hope in certain places we are seeing, even after substantial devastation, are due to our efforts. Yes, and I think uh, you... Uh, Dr. Benny brought up California and Washington, uh, and I, from what I've seen, they have been particularly successful at flattening the curve. So for states like Georgia, uh, where many of our listeners are, are going to be listening to this from, uh, what lessons do we need to take away from New York, California, Washington, and their experience as far as the, uh, the, the, the experience of social distancing, how it is having an impact on these models? So first of all, you know, um, I am an Atlantan at heart because I was physically in Atlanta uh, up until recently. So we just oh. moved to Connecticut seven months ago. Uh, and so, yes, yeah, so in, in Georgia, there are several lessons from these early states that can be applied. Uh, for example, Washington had a pretty aggressive strategy of contact tra- uh, tracing, meaning uh, if they found a case, they followed these contacts. Um, and then uh, advise them to either isolate if they were positive for symptoms versus quarantine when they were asymptomatic. So these are technical terms often used interchangeably in the media, but technically speaking, quarantine is for asymptomatic cases and isolation is for symptomatic cases. Uh, and so, so they did that. They didn't have all the capacity that ideally one would want a health department to have but at least in certain regions, they were pretty aggressive about it. California took a slightly different approach. Obviously, everyone did everything or a bunch of other things as well, um, you know, between those two states. 
But California went to a shelter-in-place strategy a little bit earlier than a lot of other places. So we know from uh, models, but also experience and data from flu outbreaks that preemptive measures are much, much more effective than reactive. I'll give you an example. If you are a mayor and you have an outbreak in a school, it's very likely you're going to shut down the school. Mm-hmm. But the fact is that today's cases that appear in your school or in your school district are a reflection of transmission ev- events that happened five to seven days ago. Because it, there is an incubation period after you get infected before you develop symptoms. So therefore, acting in anticipation based on certain signs around you is a lot more effective than to react to certain events because you're already behind uh, the dynamics of this outbreak. So these are the two different lessons that we can learn from, from these two places. So it's fair to say that being proactive, uh, as with many things, I think uh, this would be uh, something you would apply to health in general. Being proactive is always going to be better than having a reactive response to something like this. I would certainly say that. And also the other thing to keep in mind is that people have heard the phrase exponential growth before. So if an epidemic is left unchecked, then for a period of time, not the whole time, obviously, it can't continue on into infinity. But for a period of time, you're going to see uh, exponential growth. So for example, COVID-19, the best guess that we have is that everybody who has it transmits it to maybe somewhere between two and three people on average. There's been some variation there, but let's assume it's three people. Mm -hmm. So let's say you start off with one case in an area. That case becomes three cases. The next generation, those three each send it to three more. So the next week you have nine. Next week you have 27. Then you have 81. Okay, you're still okay. Maybe you can still handle it. You wait another few days. Now you've got 243. You wait another few days. You've got 700. Then you've got 2,000. Now it's out of control. So even small advantages in terms of a a proactive movement, even by just a few days, can make an enormous difference. So I completely agree with uh, Dr. Omer that the lesson to take is to be proactive. And and we've seen some states that weren't as proactive and – and we'll, we'll see what that effect is. It'll really depend on when widespread community, like person to person, American to American uh, transmission started in those areas and how long it took to start instituting social distancing measures um, to determine how severe the first wave of the outbreak is going to be. And then we'll see what that looks like in some places over the coming weeks. But uh, yeah, acting early is, is definitely the main message that I would take away. So there's an interesting piece of data that I'd love to share. We are just doing this analysis. We just had a research meeting with my uh, postdoctoral student and, and, and a medical student who is um, working with me. We looked at mobility data using cell phone data, and previously we used data from an app called City Mapper. And both of them are pointing to this interesting phenomenon, which is that irrespective of where you were, people started modifying their behavior starting in early March, irrespective of the restrictions. So people knew something was happening and they were uh, watching TV and listening to the news, et cetera, and all of that stuff. So they modifying, started modifying behavior. And that happened in places 
that did not have these uh, restrictions officially put in place. However, there was an added, substantial added benefit of these recommendations, guidelines, restrictions, etc. So it's both that there was some modification of behavior plus an impact of these um, restrictions put in place. There's also another thing that states uh, we have, you know, one of my colleagues at Yale, and I'm part of that study, uh, quickly sequenced the genome of the viruses that were introduced in Connecticut uh, because, you know, Yale is located at Connecticut. Our hospital was getting cases uh, from Connecticut. And what we found was that by early March, uh, well before, you know, uh, we were talking about, you know, the really high cases in New York, the importations within the country, especially focusing on certain regions, was from mostly, overwhelmingly from other regions of the U.S., not international Mm -hmm. importation. So therefore, the flip side of it, that by having more strict measures in a lot of other states, some states like Georgia may have benefited from others acting faster a little bit. I I don't want to exaggerate that effect, but that may have bought, uh, you know, our friends in Georgia a little bit more time. That didn't mean that they shouldn't have acted faster. They absolutely should have because we, there is a lot more added benefit. But 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 that's the full picture. That's so fascinating. The, and just the other the other cut of that because it cuts both ways is the virus doesn't respect county borders. It doesn't respect city borders. It doesn't respect state borders. It's a little easier at international borders, depending on the, the tightness of the border and the, uh, you know, the security that's present there and the number of ways that you can cross it. But the virus doesn't care. The, right. the virus doesn't recognize where it is. It, its sole purpose, insofar as you can say, a virus, which is some nucleic acids inside an envelope, uh, has a purpose is to infect a person and multiply uh, in it in their lung tissue and make more copies of the virus. So, uh, you know, if you don't act, like if the state next to you doesn't act, that can be dangerous for you because the virus could cross the border. But on the other hand, if the state next to you does act, as Dr. Omer was describing, that can have a benefit for you. So hopefully that, that everybody sees that that ties us together both ways and that we're all in this together. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I think that's somewhat good news to hear that there was, uh, if I'm understanding it correctly, sort of a built-in response to socially distance when people started to get the feeling that things were not uh, going well in the country, uh, even if the government uh, didn't necessarily enforce that. Uh, but at the same time, what you're, I, I want to make sure this message gets across is that um, enforcing it uh, and making it something that is, is, in essence, dictated by the government has additional benefits on top of what was already uh, being naturally done by people as as part of the understanding of the circumstance in the country. Um, and that the more we do it, the more we will benefit, not just regionally, but uh, that could spread out and have a, a benefit across the entire country. Uh, as you're saying, Dr. Benny, with this virus, uh, essentially not respecting borders and uh, the more we can do collectively to lock down, the, the bigger the benefit is going to be for the rest of the country. Is that, is that a true statement? You described it perfectly. Thank you. All right. Um, I, I know for myself personally, uh, this is, and I'm sure you've heard this before, uh, there is a lot of anxiety of, of what 
it's going to take to get back to normal. So uh, we know the social distancing is going to at least drive the numbers down, hopefully reduce the number of hospitalizations, keep our hospitals from getting overwhelmed um, and hopefully get bias time. I've heard many people say that a big part of this is about buying us time. And that time hopefully is getting towards uh, things like a vaccine or a viable treatment. Uh, what are, what's the outlook for those things? Because I, I, from what I've seen, even though we're being extremely aggressive, we know multiple countries are attacking this. I guess there's a benefit to the fact that it's a pandemic and that we know that scientists across the globe are looking at this. Um, but we know that realistically a vaccine is much further off. We know as well that there are potentially some treatments in the pipeline, but what are the timelines? What, you know, as, as someone who's looking at this and thinking, what's it going to take to get back to normal vaccine, a viable treatment that does not require hospitalization. What are some of the timelines that uh, we think we're looking at realistically, hopefully uh, that could potentially allow us to open the doors back up? So I can start with that. And Dr. Binney, I'm sure, you know, has, a lot to say on this or, or, or something to say about this. So there are four things that uh, would help us um, get out of this. So those of us who think it was the right thing to do to put in place social distancing measures have been very proactively thinking about and working on measures to ease these uh, restrictions, and, but to do it in a, very, in, in a safe manner. Because there are trade-offs, there are trade-offs in terms of people's livelihoods and in terms of people's health as well. Um, and so therefore, there are four things uh, that a lot of us recommend. So the first thing is, obviously, it's not easy. If it were easy, we, won't, we right. would not be in this place. The first thing is we'll have to have a, a national testing strategy. And testing, A, we will have to ramp up uh, the number of tests available. They, they've still fall far short of what is needed now to control the outbreak because it's in the exponential phase in many parts of the U.S. Mm-hmm. But uh, testing paired with aggressive or proactive contact tracing, meaning if you turn out to be positive, you follow their contacts, put asymptomatics in quarantine and um, symptomatics uh, and, and, and positives in isolation, et cetera, and chain, follow through these chains, we may have to do certain random testing as well and then contact tracing and so on and so forth. So that's one thing. The second thing is one of the things that people don't talk about is the fact that in China, for example, uh, looking at data from 72,000 cases, first 72,000 cases, um, 64% of the transmission happened in, (coughs) sorry, 64% of the transmission happened in familial clusters, meaning not people just living in the same household, but your aunt and uncle, et cetera. So one of the things that we need to be very proactive about is while maintaining compassionate care for our family members, how do we reduce transmission within households? So the typical or sort of one-way pattern that emerges in these outbreaks, and even in the U.S., the odds of getting it from a household member uh, are much higher than uh, from outside. So the way we deal with this is the CDC has pretty reasonable guidelines and And the WHO also has overlapping, very similar guidelines. WHO is the World Health Organization. We need a national educational campaign to focus on reducing 
home-based transmission. And I think by educating the public without taking any um, additional draconian measures, we can attack this, uh, you know, reduce home-based transmission. The third thing is that we need to continue to evaluate therapies systematically. And even if there's a modest impact of these treatments, it's not cure, even if it's not cure, and for example, a drug reduces an ICU stay by 20 to 30%, that eases off the pressure on the healthcare system. And so right. that improves outcomes for everyone. The fourth thing is the end game is, va- is the vaccine or a vaccine or multiple types of vaccines. What those of us, and a lot of my own research is on vaccines, et cetera, including vaccines for respiratory illnesses like influenza and respiratory syncytial viruses, et cetera. And now I'm doing sort of other studies related to COVID-19. We, need, we are doing those uh, studies uh, in terms of overall the scientific community is developing these vaccines, but there are a lot of other studies that need to happen and other type of preparation that needs to happen Usually it happens once the vaccine is licensed in terms of how you're going to deliver it, how you're going to vaccinate people. That needs to happen now in parallel. Right. So those are the four things will, that will get us out of this uh, situation, which is not sustainable um, because it impacts people's lives. So that way we can slowly but safely start reducing these restrictions. Right. And uh, I'll just pop in here and say, uh, you know, everybody wants a timeline and everybody wants to know I'm going to have to stay at home for two months and then it's going to be done and it's going to be fine. And it's not like that. What we need to be thinking about in terms of, instead of in terms of time is in terms of goals, in terms of criteria that we need to meet. So the goal of social distancing and staying at home, shelter in place, all of that, the goal is to slow down the exponential uh, growth in cases that we were having because our problem was we didn't have eyes on where this thing was and it got out of control. And once it was out of control, you had no choice but to take really broad based uh, strict measures to have everybody stay at home, which is not an easy thing to do. There are trade-offs. I am very sympathetic uh, to the folks who are having to stay at home. God knows the people who have lost their jobs because we can't have areas open where people congregate because the virus could uh, transmit out of control. Um, I, I, every single public health official I know is, is sympathetic to all of that. And it stinks. And we want it to end as quickly as we can. <clears throat> but again, the goal is not time. The goal is we need to get transmissions and new cases down to a level where we can have eyes on it and where we can keep it manageable through testing, uh, rapidly identifying new cases uh, almost as quickly as they occur, and isolating those people, so separating them from the broader population, and then uh, finding folks in their household or elsewhere uh, who may be at high risk and and warning them and asking them to quarantine as well. It's kind of like we're we're trying to get to the point where we can play 11-on-11 football again. (laughs) You can just... You can just defend, you know, if you've got 11 guys on defense, you've maybe got just enough to stop a high-powered offense like this virus, which has a lot of benefits going for it. The problem when it gets out of control is it's like the virus can play with 15 guys. And I don't care how good your secondary is, you're not going to be able to defend nine receivers. You just can't. (laughs) 
right? And so that was the situation that we were in and why we had to basically beg the refs to blow the whistle and stop the game until we could get those four extra guys off the field. That's what we're trying to do right now. So, so that's why I, this, this is precisely why I can, you know, some of us epidemiology nerds consider Dr. Binney our ambassador to the sports world. There's this kind of framing. <laughs> I, I think our listeners will appreciate that. Uh, NFL draft talk here in just a second. So if you guys have uh, thoughts on uh, Kinlaw, we, we are all. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, actually, this is a great transition into, um, you know, really the biggest thing that I think I and a lot of other people want to know. And I mean, I understand, as you just said, Dr. Binney, that there is no timeline right now. Uh, but I know that the NFL is looking at their timeline right now, trying to figure out uh, what they can do and more or less when they can do it. And I, I know that there are two main dates that uh, I think that they have to be looking at. And uh, you have, I think it's uh, mid-June, yeah, sorry, mid-July. Uh, training camp is going to kick off. So they're going to mm-hmm. take 100 plus players, probably another 100 plus uh, coaches, staff, and other people, and they're going to want everyone to get trained up for the season. And that, that, again, that's mid July. And our kickoff is planned for September 10th. And that's dumping 70,000 fans, um, a couple of teams, all the supporting staff, and everything into one spot. Um, along with all the associated travel. I'm sure we're still talking um, uh, airplane rides, hotel rooms, and um, a lot of that, and I'm a little curious on um, on how you think that timeline works with something like COVID-19, which does not necessarily have a timeline. If uh, you know, if, if any of these things seem reasonable, whether or not uh, they can play games without uh, fans, if that would be something safer, or if this is something that is probably just out of the question as of this point. Right. So uh, the NFL season is in jeopardy. But there are things that we can do to make it more likely that we can still have the NFL in the fall. And I, and I don't think that's out of the question at all. It, it's really dangerous to make 100% predictions, and I don't like doing that. But I am almost as close to 100% certain as I can be that we're not going to be able to have sporting events with fans until we have a vaccine. Uh, just getting fifty to 70,000 people together uh, even a hundred thousand for something like college football uh, would be incredibly dangerous. Even if transmission is fairly low in that area, you may have people coming in uh, from out of town, uh, and it's just not I, the situation on the ground would have to change drastically for me to think that putting that many people together is responsible. Because the thing is, every time you add a person to a gathering, you increase the risk of creating more cases in two ways. One is you increase the risk of somebody with the virus being in that group. And the other is you add somebody uh, who is potentially susceptible to that virus and can have it transmitted to them, to that group. So the safest you can possibly be is a single person completely isolated, right? Virus won't jump to you. Second safest is two people because there's only two chances for somebody to be sick and, and one chance for the virus to jump. As you get bigger, you know, 10 people is more dangerous than two, 50 is more dangerous than 10, 500 is more dangerous uh, than that, and 70,000 would be, would be extremely dangerous. So, I, you know, I think that most leagues are probably in their heart of hearts, if I had to guess, looking at solutions without fans until we have a vaccine, which isn't going to be this year, uh, I don't think. Um, so where does that leave the NFL? The main message that I want to get across to people is – 
the more aggressive that we are now about bringing the number of new cases down to a trickle. And the more vigilant we are about keeping containment on the virus, the easier it is going to be to bring professional sports back. So if you want sports back, do uh, what you need to do right now and continue to do what public health officials uh, are asking you to do in the future. So what might the NFL be able to do to salvage its season? Uh, My guess, and this is just a guess, is that uh, you would need to limit the number of people that you have together in order to run training camp and run games uh, as much as you can. Uh, Ideally, you would uh, quarantine those people Uh, as well as you could, maybe in the local hotels, uh, you know, and have a sterile transport to the system, uh, to uh, the stadium or to the team facility. You know, the ideal solution, which is really, really difficult, is to create this kind of biodome, right, which would be a totally closed system that the virus couldn't enter, which would be players, coaches, uh, broadcasters, officials, medical staff, uh, And by the way, all of the support staff necessary to pull this off, like the people who run the hotel, your bus drivers, all of these people would have to be isolated and tested multiple times for two weeks to make sure they were virus free and then transmitted as quickly and cleanly as possible into this quarantine system that you're trying to run. And then you would have to maintain that really, really aggressively. It's also possible that just by, if you had, if you had a lid on community transmission and there really were only a few cases, I think you could make an argument for the risk of a case popping up being fairly low as long as you were aggressively testing everybody involved in everything at least a couple of days and maintaining some sort of soft quarantine, like at least having team personnel staying in hotels. It's all really going to depend on the situation on the ground and everything is a a risk benefit trade-off, right? But we definitely need to be prioritizing public health and only bringing sports back uh, if it can be done safely uh, for the players who, as much as people think, you know, young elite athletes are in no danger. That's not true. They're in some danger. The danger is not zero of dying or having long-term health consequences from getting COVID-19. You've also got to think about the coaches, the officials. These are not all young, uh, you know, elite athletes themselves, right? So you've got to think about the risk to them. And so you have to have a system that puts their health first. And, uh, and it's, it's possible, but it's all going to depend on the situation on the ground and how widespread transmission is and how rigorous of a quarantine you could establish for how many people. And the last thing that I'll say on this, I know I'm rambling a bit and I apologize. But the last perfect. Thing I'll Thank say, you. This, this is all of fantastic and very enlightening on the situation. But, but the last thing that I'll say is that all of these methods are going to take a tremendous amount of logistical planning and economic resources. And they're also going to take things like tests, uh, COVID-19 tests. It's going to take medical personnel to run a league, especially a league like the NFL. We need to have a situation where we're not taking those tests away from people who need them. uh, And the medical system is not overwhelmed. So that taking the doctors and the other medical personnel that we need in order to be able to run the league is not putting anyone else in danger. Otherwise that raises uh, some ethical questions. Uh, You know, could we be at that point by the summer? I think it's possible. I think that the jury is still out and I'm really curious to see what happens, especially with the testing being spun up and what happens in some of the states that were a little later movers. 
uh, on shelter-in-place orders, um, and we'll we'll see what happens. It's a developing situation, like y'all said. Yeah, I'll just add one thing. To, well, actually, a couple of things to it. Uh, it would be a lot easier to mitigate risk if whatever is happening around a stadium, whatever is happening around a team or or, or the whole league, is under control. So if we have increased, uh, substantially increased testing capacity and contact tracing capacity and all of that, then the overall risk goes down. Having said that, uh, as someone who proactively thinks about uh, the overall population's health, health of Americans, health of Atlantans, um, it is important to recognize that sports are... um, you know, without sort of sounding too philosophical, is an expression of our shared humanity. It's a microcosm of how we behave as societies. And they play a really substantial role in returning us to normalcy. And even if that normalcy means that we are sitting in our living rooms and for a while we don't get to go to uh, sort of big arenas and, and enjoy that as a collective experience in the same place, there is, it is important to be creative about these things. Yes, it will not be easy. It will take substantial economic resources. And it's the league's responsibility to be safe, hard-nosed, and sort of seek out folks who know what they're doing in terms of disease control, et cetera, and, and, and think through it with some level of maturity to say, look, this is these are the benchmarks we set out from now. So the good thing is that the advantage, uh, the advantage we have uh, as a society for events that are in, uh, you know, a few months away is that we can plan for them and we can have two, three mitigation scenarios and say, okay, here's how we, what, uh, you know, we can, um, you know, mitigate the risk. There is, you know, made, all major teams have pretty sophisticated quantitative shops and it's the similar kinds of skills that can map out different scenarios. They can look at different disease control strategies and risk mitigation strategies. And again, have the maturity to say that maybe it's not going to work out. But I think as someone who believes the importance of sports in a society, I think it's worth trying as long as you're willing to say, okay, maybe the solutions might not work out. And then willing to wait and see how the situation evolves because there are several variables around the, in terms of how the broader society and how we respond to this outbreak in the next few months as a country. Yeah, I completely agree. Sports is absolutely a reflection of us. And, and often I like to think the best of us and, uh, Believe me, you will not find an epidemiologist, I don't think, who is a bigger sports fan than me or somebody who (laughs) wants, uh, you know, I'm a big NFL guy in particular. I don't think you'll find an epidemiologist who wants the NFL back more than me. And if there is a way, uh, we should find it. Uh, But I think that that, that, that there definitely has to be a way and it has to be responsible. And and I think there's a risk that the situation couldn't allow that. But I think that there's a chance uh, that it could. So I'm, I'm hopeful. But just as just as sports are a reflection of the best of us, they also, you know, athletes, uh, other people affiliated with the league, they're, they're role models for a lot of people. So um, I, I think it's also important for them to model the behaviors that we are asking other people to do. So maintaining uh, 
doing everything that they're doing in as responsible a way as they can and, and getting tested and maybe even being really public about that so that other people uh, are more willing to get tested, I think would be great. I actually heard a story that I, I just want to share with y'all uh, from yesterday. The, uh, the Taiwanese Baseball uh, Association, I'm, I'm not using the correct name here, but uh, they restarted, they had their first game uh, this morning. And uh, they had uh, robot mannequins, I believe, in the stands as spectators. <laughs> and even though they put mannequins in the stands, uh, Taiwan actually has the uh, epidemic under control to the degree that their public health officials have recommended gatherings of no greater than 500. So I believe they kept the total number of people in the stadium under 500, including mannequins. And I just thought that was such a great message of you're really demonstrating how much uh, that we need to be listening to to our officials and and maintaining responsibility. And I, I thought it was a really great uh, display of public health messaging and science communication. And I, and I really want to applaud them for that. So this, uh, Matt, it, it makes me think this could be a circumstance where the Falcons would pipe in stadium noise and not get in trouble for it. So <laughs> well, I had somebody, uh, the, the person who mentioned this will remain nameless, but I had somebody else make that very same joke oh. to me. <laughs> Oh, it's someone has to cheer for Dirk Cutter and it's not going to be the fans. This yeah. <laughs> so I want to talk about the NFL season and how a second wave of this virus could cause some additional issues, uh, as well as talking about the things that it would take to get back to normal, to be able to see a true NFL season uh, this year, next year. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to cars.com. It's magical. So as a layperson, I want to try to uh, summarize what we th- may be the best case scenario. And that is, uh, number one, if we stay aggressive about uh, social distancing, about uh, staying at home whenever possible, even if local governments begin to open it up, uh, staying diligent about that. Uh, and if we, as a country, uh, again, recognizing that this can't just be a Georgia thing or just uh, a New York thing, this has to be countrywide. Uh, if we maintain uh, those practices and drive the, dum- the numbers down now, uh, we stand a better chance of getting to some version of an NFL season, even if it is not a 70,000 person packed stadium uh, in September. Uh, so it, the other part of this, and I, I just want to add this on because I think, you know, we're trying to get through this portion of the, the pandemic uh, But Dr. Fauci has said that he believes that this virus could be seasonal and meaning that we will see this uh, potentially come back uh, even this year uh, in the back half of the year. And obviously uh, if somehow the NFL gets its season going, we could still see a second wave hit literally 
maybe in the middle of the, the season, November, uh, December, in that time frame. Um, is there a consensus yet on whether we could see a second wave? Do we feel like that that is a distinct possibility? Do we need to plan for that now uh, in the aspect of thinking about what society needs to do to prepare for that as much as possible? So there are two ways of thinking about it. it one is the natural dynamics of this outbreak. And so without any intervention, obviously we are intervening, but it's, it's, a, it's a good way to think about how the virus could or would behave if we hadn't intervened. And if from that aspect, we do know, you know, there are coronaviruses, other like coronaviruses that spread every year. Four of them are fairly common. They don't cause a lot of disease mm-hmm. uh, because they don't cause a lot of severe disease. And we do know there is seasonality to those viruses. We do know that influenza and respiratory syncytial virus, the other two more common viruses that we experience, have a seasonality to them. But if you asked me around 2008, I would have been more confident in saying that there will be a substantial dip or they would go away in the summer. But what happened in the 2009 swine flu pandemic, which was very widespread but was not as lethal, but it did teach us about disease transmission in summer months, what happened was that even though the virus went down in the summer months a little bit, it didn't go away because there were so many people susceptible to it that it kept on circulating. And that's the more likely scenario based on what we know now. Obviously, science around this virus is emerging And the likely scenario in the absence of any intervention would be that there will be a dip in transmission, but it will not go away and there will be an increase. That happened in the 1918 flu pandemic. Actually, the fall wave was way more severe than the early spring thing that happened in the first wave. Now, we are not in a natural scenario. We have... uh, tried to and have been successful in mitigating, not completely containing, but mitigating the impact of this outbreak. So a second wave, uh, the existence, uh, emergence of a second wave, but also the size or uh, the magnitude of a second wave will be dependent as much on humans as it would be on the weather. And what we do, how we do it, and how widespread our measures are would dictate whether there is a second wave and how high it is. I think that's perfectly put. And uh, I'll just try to add on a sports analogy. And and Dr. Omer can tell me if he thinks this sounds ridiculous, but (laughs) the weather would be kind of like, imagine you just add a pass rusher crashing in on a quarterback. If you've got a typical coronavirus, like those that cause the common cold, if, you know, those have less room to move around because there's a lot of people who already have some degree of immunity to these existing viruses. That's kind of like when you add uh, a weather change to it, that's like going from three defensive linemen crashing down on a quarterback to four. It makes a pretty big difference uh, maybe in what uh, the quarterback would be able to do if, if the quarterback is the virus and trying to spread the ball Uh, to somebody else. Whereas with a virus that has a lot of opportunity to move because it's completely new and there's not a lot of natural immunity, the weather might add one defensive lineman, but 
the quarterback had nobody crashing in on him. So he can still spin out of the pocket, and it's a little harder for him uh, to get the ball out, but he still can. So, uh, you know, I think there's still a lot of unanswered questions about this, and, and Dr. Omer described that beautifully, but that's the sports analogy that I would try to add. I like that sports analogy because we have talked about three-man rushes uh, during the Mike Smith, <laughs> uh, uh, head coaching uh, era, and uh, we, we have a lot of negative things to say about that. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I don't want to hold you guys up too long, but I would really love to uh, wrap this up a little bit into um, just trying to get an idea on if there's a possibility of things opening up. Like, is there going to be a time in the near future where I can leave my office, I can go to Chili's, um, you know, get some uh, quesadilla burgers, whatever they have, head over to TJ Maxx, just like normal, and the country's um, – uh, opened up uh, as normal if we're staying under, say, 500 people? Or is this a much more complex um, answer and consideration before we get back to uh, life as normal? Well, vaccines will help us do that. Vaccines will help us uh, come back to normal. And I think there will be certain... um, modified behaviors, even for the long run, there will be mm-hmm. fewer handshakes and hugs and that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, that, that, you know, no, normalcy, near normalcy, full normalcy will happen if, when we have a safe and effective vaccine. Short of that, the, the, the three, four things I described would help us reduce the risk and help us open up to a lesser degree, but still open up if, if we have some of the other measures in place. Yeah, I think that, you know, the best guess for a vaccine is is probably about 18 months. But I also don't think that any public health officials, or at least many, are proposing that we maintain this level of shelter in place uh, for 18 months. That's not the goal. That's not the plan. That's certainly not the hope. Uh, But it will take, uh, it will take sacrifices by people. Um, It will take, you know, a really large percentage of the population being willing to get tested, for example, and, uh, you know, what are we going to do if somebody uh, tests positive but says, uh, you know, I don't believe it or uh, you don't have any business telling me what to do. I'm not going to isolate. How do we treat that? Um, mm. How do we treat their contacts? You know, I think there are a lot of, a lot of open questions. Uh, and I think that it is going to require an unprecedented mobilization uh, and civic mindedness on behalf of the American people. And I'm, I'm hopeful that we can pull it off, but it's, it's going to be a challenge, but you're absolutely right uh, that, you know, I think we're going to see a a staged reopening uh, here, certainly uh, sometime before 18 months. I don't know exactly when it's, it's again going to depend on the conditions on the ground. Uh, But uh, you know, every person you add to a gathering, I'll just reiterate adds risk. So everything that you open up and every addition that you make adds a little bit of risk. Some of that may be tolerable risk. That's what we're trying to hit, that sweet spot of finding that, that tolerable risk where uh, some people can get back to work. Uh, maybe we can have restaurants open up at, say, half capacity or something like that, as long as there's good distance between their tables. You know, there, there are creative solutions to get the risk down to uh, a level that would that would be, I think, uh, acceptable. And, and that's the hope. And that's what we're trying to get to. So uh, having personally kept up with all of this, uh, and I'll, I'll be very honest, uh, I've, uh, as I'm sure many people have uh, had the same experience. 
I have had a lot of anxiety over this. And I think it's the, for me personally, it's a lot of the unknown, not knowing uh, all the information you want to know. Uh, and certainly that creates um, fear and, and uncertainty. Um, but from what I've seen, it feels like the, with the vaccine being at least uh, a year away. And that's if things go perfectly and, and we're very aggressive and we can spin things up in record time. It seems like the, the two things we need to have uh, in order to begin to approach some level of normalcy is widespread testing, uh, which, uh, you know, as citizens, we should be demanding that uh, testing become more available um, each and every day. Uh, and then number two is some sort of viable treatment that uh, would not require hospitalization. And I do know, and I'm a big believer that uh, science will save us. Uh, science, our scientists around the country, around the world, frankly, uh, again, this being a pandemic, I think we've got many, many brilliant minds in, in all of the countries uh, trying to figure out a way uh, to slowly open this up. And uh, I'm particularly proud that I know Emory University, uh, being from Atlanta, uh, is on the front lines of this. I think they are currently looking at an antiviral uh, that uh, I, I don't want to get anyone's hopes up. So let me caution this to say it is showing pro promise in the early stages. But uh, would you agree that normalcy is going to require uh, or the first stage of normalcy? Uh, again, I don't think we're going to get back to full-blown normalcy for a while, but the first stage of normalcy is going to require tons of testing, the ability to test when we need to, and something that will keep our hospitals from getting overwhelmed again, something that will prevent people from having to go in for ventilators, uh, going into the ICU as, as a better solution uh, to keep our hospitals from getting overwhelmed if, if, a, uh, if an influx happens again. That's exactly correct. But I also... Uh, you know, say something about the anxiety all of us are fe uh, feeling. Yes, this is serious. And those of us who saw this coming uh, based on our training, based on our research, I had an op-ed in the New York Times a couple of days after the first case. It was at that time one or two cases. That was the total number. And I saw that coming, talked about a few things the country could do. And it was, it, it is a sense of helplessness for those who know, who understand outbreaks, who have been trained in this kind of stuff. Having said that, look, this is a serious threat, but it's not an existential threat to this country and to the world. We have seen, as a country, worse, thing, yeah. uh, worse things. And, and we, can, we are not helpless observers to an unfolding mass events. We have a lot of self-efficacy. Yes, it has been tough. But we as a people have started to, you know, I'll use the term, have started to flatten the curve. It is an artificial situation. It has taken our effort. It's not the natural state of the outbreak. But the reason why we have made it unnatural, we have beaten back nature. And, and, and look at the enormity of effort it has taken, but also the empowerment that comes with that collective effort. So yes, we are not helpless. And, and, and you know, this will be tough and this has been tough, but in, in, in the words of perhaps the greatest American this country has ever produced, this, this, this too shall pass.
Hmm. Well and uh, I, I completely agree about the fact that we have done tremendous things already, and I hope that we will be able to continue uh, doing tremendous things. I actually just want to uh, step from that really quick into an important point about forecasts uh, of what's going to happen, because I think that has resulted in quite a bit of confusion and is maybe contributing to some of the frustration and anxiety that some people are feeling. So I am stealing this uh, from other people. So please do not think that this is uh, me coming up with, with some brilliant analogy, but most Americans, I think the forecast that they're most used to is a weather forecast, right? We say uh, tomorrow there's a 70% uh, chance of rain. And you bring your umbrella, and whether you bring your umbrella, even though it may feel like it sometimes, does not make one whit of difference whether it <laughs> rains or not. The, the weather gods do not care whether you have your umbrella. The disease very much cares how, much, uh, uh, how many social contacts you have and how easy you make for it to spread. So you have done tremendous things. I love uh, Dr. Omer said, we're beating back nature. It's true. The forecast that came out uh, early looked at the possibility that the epidemic would exist in its natural state, basically if we did nothing, and described what would happen under those circumstances. But those forecasts were not written in stone. And in fact, they looked at a variety of other scenarios that reflect what we're seeing now. Uh, And those were used in order to inform uh, governments and inform people about the seriousness of the situation and how they needed to change and what would happen if they did. And those forecasts have, have largely come to pass. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that, I hope that that gives people, if anything, um, both a reminder of how serious things can get if we do let our guard down and also uh, makes them impressed with what they were able to do and hopefully actually increases uh, their trust in the forecasts, even though it can seem weird because the media fixates on the one uh, number and reports it and doesn't uh, give all of the context uh, behind the model. I, I think scientists have been doing uh, tremendous, tremendous work. And, uh, and I, I really hope that we'll be able to continue with that. The very last thing that I'll say is that you mentioned uh, tests and treatments. I think the other key point from a public health, not from a medical perspective, is that you need to do something with those tests when they happen. You don't just, testing somebody and having them come up positive, that doesn't mean anything. Then what happens? How do you uh, isolate somebody? How do you convince them to isolate in the safest possible way? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's something that, that we're going to need buy-in uh, to get, and, and hopefully our leaders uh, will help us do that, and everybody will, will pull together in the largest mobilization that we've seen uh, in this country in a very, very long time. But to accomplish something truly spectacular of saving uh, probably well north of a million lives. I mean, I, I can't think of much else better that any of us could do with our lives, frankly. Absolutely. Uh, and on that note, I think uh, our, our listeners are going to truly and deeply appreciate uh, this conversation. Uh, it, it is, I know I have, uh, and thank you for what you both said there at the end. Uh, as someone who has been struggling with this, I'll, I'll be very honest. I've, personally struggled with this, even though I've, um, I'm one of the fortunate few who has not uh, you know, lost their job as a result of uh, what is going on right now. Uh, I think there are many of us who need to be reminded that, yes, it's tough, but we are doing what we can and we are 
uh, we are changing the models. We're, we're having an impact on the weather, Dr. Benny, as you said, uh, where we are actually, uh, I, I love uh, Dr. Omer, what you said, we are fighting back nature. And that is an outstanding way to think about um, the success we are having and also to remind people that we need to stay on top of this. Uh, so I, I just want to go to you both and ask if you have any last words, anything else you want our listeners to know or understand uh, about this, uh, this event, about the NFL, anything uh, to, to close this out. Dr. So a couple of, yeah. So there's a couple of things. So the, when this virus uh, started spreading, it started two outbreaks. One was this viral outbreak. The other outbreak was the outbreak of misinformation. And misinformation can be as harmful as the virus itself because people can overwhelm the health system. Mm -hmm. People can try out different therapies that don't work or even harm them and so on and so forth. So we need to be vigilant about misinformation as much as we are vigilant about the virus itself. So I wasn't, for example, as engaged in education. Uh, I would do interviews, media interviews, etc. But I have become more engaged. I'm, while I'm actively doing my conducting my research on this outbreak, uh, I, I think it's my responsibility. And I'm really grateful with Dr. Benny. All of, well, 99% of what he said was correct. With one exception, he said, the sports reflect the best of us. I would say exceptions apply. I'm not going to try. <laughs> That's fair. That's I'm very fair. Not any particular teams, uh, because I'm, you know, I, I've moved to New England, and uh, well, I'm, I'll, I'll leave it at there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but coming back to this, so for, for example, you know, I I have I tweet my my Twitter handle if if, if that's okay for me yes, to give. Yes, please. Is Saad Omar? Omar is O M E R three. So Saad Omar three. You know, feel free to follow me. I talk about the virus and public health issues and the things uh, related to it. And 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 so we need to be vigilant about this outbreak of misinformation as much as uh, we want to be vigilant about the virus itself. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And that's a perfect opportunity for me to both uh, plug my Twitter handle. Yes, at please. Z Binny, that's B as in Bravo, I double N as in November, E as in Echo, Y underscore N F L I N J. Uh, but beyond me, uh, I would like to give folks uh, some options for places to go where they can get uh, really reliable information. Uh, and I would say that, uh, that there are a few organizations that do that really well. Uh, I've been really impressed with the journalism that The Atlantic magazine has been putting out. Mm. Uh, they've put out a lot of really uh, top-notch stuff. Um, the New York Times, they're, uh, they're, I'm not talking about their political coverage. I'm not trying to, to get anybody to like get on that train one way or the other. I'm just talking about their science news and their, their uh, direct coverage of the virus, I think, has been quite good. And they put out some really interesting interactive visualizations uh, and things like that. Um, and in terms of other Twitter follows, I would look at uh, Eleanor Murray. She is at Epi, E-P-I-L-E-E-L-L-I-E. She's an epidemiologist uh, out of uh, Boston University. And uh, she has a list of great uh, coronavirus follows who are 
full of really, really uh, reliable information. So I would take a look at that list if you like Twitter. Uh, if not, there's also another organization called Stat News, S-T-A-T News, uh, that has been putting out some pretty good stuff as well. So that's just a few uh, reliable sources that your listeners can go to and get for uh, for the straight dope. No, no uh, misinformation there. Fantastic. Um, oh, ProPublica as well has been doing uh, tremendous work. Excellent. Yeah, I frequent those sites myself. Um, Matt, any... F- Final thoughts before we wrap this one up. Ooh, that was a lot. Thank you so much for uh, coming on. Like, I feel like that, uh, that really gave, e- even me who reads through a lot of this uh, information, gave me a whole lot of uh, new things to consider about, you know, the, the virus and the outlook of uh, uh, the country, let alone the NFL, which I guess, I guess, we, I guess we sort of write about. We are paid for some of that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so again, uh, Dr. Homer, Dr. Benny, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for being here. Uh, deeply appreciate you setting aside time. I know you're both very busy, uh, and we, uh, couldn't appreciate more, uh, the time you gave to us, uh, today to uh, record this podcast. Matt, David, thank you so much for having us getting information out there to sports listeners is really, really important. Yes. Thank you. Uh, and guys, for the Falcoholic Podcast, you can follow us on Twitter at Falcoholic Pod. And of course, uh, our articles daily at thefalcoholic.com. You can find me at Falcoholic DW, uh, where I will be posting the link to this interview. Uh, and uh, I believe Matt will be writing this up. And we are going to provide those links, the Twitter handles, so you guys can follow uh, these excellent doctors and stay on top of this information. And uh, please, please, please. Stay safe, stay home, and uh, we are going to push this virus down and be successful against it. So, for Matt Chambers, Dr. Omer, Dr. Benny, this is David Walker. Thank you guys for listening in, and we'll talk with you next time.